And I invite you to turn this morning as we continue our series in Who Our God Is to Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 through 9. So as you turn to Exodus 34, let me ask you a question. Uh, Why don't we become best friends with everyone that we meet? Or if you're single and interested in getting married, why don't you just marry the first person available? Because that would be crazy. Yes, that would be crazy. Uh, But it would be crazy because your best friends or your spouse are invited into the most intimate parts of your life. And so before that happens, you would want to know what kind of person uh, you'd be living with. Are they quick to anger or are they patient? Will they forgive you? Uh, Do they keep their word? Are they fun to be with? Do they want you to grow and mature in the faith? And will they actively help you to grow and mature in Jesus? And I start this way because Jesus knows that when he brings us into a relationship with himself, we're going to have those same kinds of questions. Uh, What kind of God are you? What does living with you look like on a day-to-day basis? Uh, When I fail, how are you going to respond? Those are good questions. And as a matter of fact, Jesus invites those questions because he wants us to know him. And he wants us to know how his love and forgiveness and holiness will be lived out with us daily. And that's what our passage this morning is about. In Exodus 34, 1 through 9, we're going to see the Lord proclaim his name to Moses in the context of sin and failure. And what you're going to see is that the name of the Lord means that Jesus lives with us as the God who patiently and graciously forgives and sanctifies us. And so let's read our passage. We'll pray, and then we'll reflect on these three points. First, learning the Lord's name. And yes, I am going to survey Exodus chapters 1 through 34. Uh, Secondly, then, the Lord lives with us in forgiveness and mercy. That'll be verses 6 through 7 of our passage. And then finally, the Lord lives with us in sanctifying grace. That'll be verse 7. So let's hear now uh, God's word from Exodus 34, 1 through 9. Let's give our full attention to it. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord... The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. 
And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Thus far the reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you've given us this word for our instruction and for our edification. And Father, we ask now that you will be present with us by your Spirit so that we would not only hear it with our ears, but understand it with our minds and most especially believe it with our hearts, that we would come away this morning with a deep and profoundly uh, changed and strengthened idea of who you are, so that we would leave here knowing you and confident that we have met you this morning in worship. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So the first thing we're going to reflect on is learning the Lord's name. So in verse 5, we read that the Lord proclaimed the name of the Lord to Moses. And the beginning of Exodus tells us why this name Lord, in all capital letters, is so important. In Exodus chapter 1, we find Israel enslaved by an Egyptian nation that was genocidally working them to death. In Exodus chapter 2, Moses is born. He's rescued uh, by Pharaoh's daughter and then as an adult has to flee to the desert for his life because he killed an Egyptian while trying to stop that Egyptian from beating an Israelite to death. And then while in the desert, Moses gets married and becomes a shepherd for his father-in-law. And all of that is chapter 2, by the way. All of it. So uh, there's, you know, most of the story of Exodus that we know in two chapters. Uh, In chapter 3, God appears to Moses in the burning bush. And he tells him that through Moses, God is going to save Israel out of slavery. And in response to this, you have this really important conversation in verse 13 of chapter 3. I'm going to read this to you. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. God gives both a full name and a shorter name. Like my name is Matthew, but everyone calls me Matt right? Uh, So God says, my name is I am who I am, and then he gives a shorter name, I am. It's the longer form, the longer name that interests us this morning. Uh, So in terms of the Hebrew language and grammar, uh, because our knowledge of ancient Hebrew has grown, most biblical scholars, the majority now recognize that the best translation is actually, I will be named by what I will do. And then the shortened form will be something like, I am that God. Or to unpack it, our God is the God who did did and does those things for us. And then for a variety of reasons, which I'm not going to go into this morning, I preached a sermon on this like five years ago. I did two Sunday schools on it, I think uh, a few years ago. I can find the audio if you want. But for a variety of reasons, I'm not going to go into this morning. Uh, That shortened name becomes the Lord in all capital letters, the God who does those things. So all of that to say, when Moses asked God for his name, God says, I will reveal my name, but I, what I am about to do for you. In other words, God doesn't say, well, my name's Bob. Tell him Bob sent you. 
He says, I'll show you who I am by my actions. And then once you've seen me act, then you'll know what to call me. And so what does God do? Well, he defeats a genocidal superpower easily. He saves the Israelites, and also, if you read Exodus Exodus carefully, a number of Egyptians who repented and believed in him too. He meets his people's needs in the desert with manna and quail. And then he gives them water from places there shouldn't be water. Uh, Up to this point, God acts by delivering them up from a living death, meeting their needs in the wilderness, answering their fears, in hearing their prayers. But now there is a a new issue, which is how will God act toward our sin and our faithlessness? What is God going to do when his people betray him and worship idols like they just did before this when they made the golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai? That's the issue here. What will God do with the fact that the people who he wants to live with are still sinners. That's why God proclaiming the name of the Lord in all capital letters to Moses is so important here because what God says to Moses in verses 6 to 7 is what he says to us too. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We're going to unpack that this morning. Uh, But essentially, God says, my name is the God who is merciful and gracious and sanctifying. God's name is, you see, the description of the life he lives with us as his sinful people. And this is also, by the way, you'll see this description of God throughout the Bible. This becomes one of the formative statements of who God is. Uh, Our ancient uh, Jewish brothers and sisters who lived even before, you know, Jesus came, they referred to this as the 14 attributes of God. (laughs) That's how definitive it became in the theological reflection of God's people. And it's also why we read in Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I mean, did you hear that? The name the Lord is given to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the God who lives with us in mercy and in love and in sanctification, who saves us from a living death that is enslavement to sin and meets our needs and makes a way for us when there is no way. And by the way, did you know that Jesus' name means God saves? Is it any wonder that is the name of the Lord that we now know by what he has done for us? Jesus, Savior. So given that, then, let's move on to our second point. Let's reflect on God's life with us, then, as our Savior in forgiveness and mercy. And here I just want to look briefly at each word God uses to name his life with us. Uh, The first thing God says to his people 
who have betrayed him is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Uh, so God is merciful, which means he doesn't treat us the way that we deserve to be treated. He treats us better than we deserve. Mercy. And he's gracious. Uh, now this Hebrew word only describes God in the Bible. And what it means is, is that God is the one who hears the cries for help that no one else will listen to and who helps when no one else can. That's what it means for God to be gracious. Like at the beginning of Exodus, when God hears his people's suffering and they're groaning under the weight of murder and being worked and whipped to death, groans that the Egyptians and their idols ignored and that could not be alleviated by any other human power. At this time in history, there's no human power or a kingdom that could stop the Egyptians from abusing the Israelites. And by the way, no one cared. But God cared, and God could, and he heard. He's gracious. He hears and he responds when there's no one else to hear and when there's no one else to help. Another example of God's graciousness, actually, though, here is in our passage in verse 9, where Moses pleads with God to keep Israel as in his inheritance. So my question to you is, who can make God hear a request to forgive? Who can intervene if God decided he didn't want to forgive? No one. But God's point is, you don't need someone to make me listen. You don't need someone to step in to save when I fail to step in to save, because I hear you. I see your suffering. I meet your sins with my mercy. I save you. My name is Jesus. I am gracious and merciful. And not only is God gracious and merciful, he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So slow to anger obviously means that God is patient. And his patience really has two aspects. The first aspect is that God is in control of his emotional life. God doesn't lash out in anger and frustration. He doesn't explode. Uh, what a wonderful word to hear right after a sin, right? Like, yes, God says, what you've done has grieved me, but I am in control of my grief, and I am in control of my response. I'm not going to beat you. I'm not going to throw a fit and stomp away. That is part of what it means for God to be patient. But for God to be patient also means that uh, he's willing to endure our failures and our sins and give us time to grow and mature. And this is an aspect of Jesus' patience that I don't think we get enough thought to, or at least I don't. Uh, so when God brings Israel up out of Egypt in chapter 13, in verse 17, he says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was nearer. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Another example of this patience would be all the new laws that God gives them to teach them how to live in loving holiness uh, with him and with each other. Jesus understands, you see, we need time and instruction to grow and to mature. He understands that we will fail and that we will need our forgiveness renewed and reassured 
And Jesus is patient with those needs. And he even chooses longer, more indirect routes to accommodate our own limitations and frailty. Related to that, God shows steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness go together because steadfast love means the care that I vowed to give you. And this is why steadfast love sometimes is translated as covenant love, at least in reform circles, uh, because it's the love that God has vowed to show us as his people. And the closest example we have of this in which uh, Jesus will use throughout the Bible to refer to this love are wedding vows. And we might specifically think of those uh, old vows written in the 16th century by uh, that great reformer Thomas Cranmer in the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, I will love you for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and health, until death do us part, or for as long as we both shall live. Cranmer wrote those beautiful words because he wanted to be sure that Christian marriage was aimed toward reflecting Jesus' own covenant love, covenant vows to his people. God says, my love will not appear only in times of ease and blessing, but also in times of hardship and suffering. I will love you in heaven, Jesus says, and I will love you in the valley of the shadow of death. And then faithfulness goes with that. Faithfulness means that his word is reliable. So all of us have had promises broken, uh, either intentionally or because someone just overpromised, uh, or because the suffering involved in keeping that promise was just too much for them. Maybe for us, we've all broken promises too. Jesus tells us here, I am faithful. I keep my promises. Even if it costs me the glories of heaven and the sufferings of hell on the cross, I will love you in life and in death, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, for as long as we both shall live. And since I live forever, Jesus says, and you live forever in me, I will never fail you. And he's shown us that time and time again, especially in Jesus on the cross. We also hear God say his name is revealed by keeping steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So here, thousands is the uh, Hebrew equivalent to our expression, a gazillion. It's a way of expressing a huge number. And uh, one of the reasons why I think God uses it here is because he wants us to see not only the limitlessness of his love, like when we say gazillion, we just mean like it's bigger than you can imagine, but he also wants us to see the individuality of his love. By using a countable number, one, two, three, four, five, right? An individuating number, God wants each of his individual people to realize that he keeps his steadfast love to you and to me. In other words, God doesn't love us as an amorphous mass of people. He loves us as the individuals he's created us to be. With all of our personality quirks and personal histories, with all of our failures and follies and successes, with all of our training and wisdom, with all, with, with all that we are, 
Jesus keeps his steadfast love individually to each one of the thousand gazillion people who live with him on earth and now in heaven. He keeps it. And then finally, we hear God say in the context of failure, after all of this, that he is the God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. So iniquity means the pollution of sin, the way that sin spreads out to others and draws them into that sin. And I know we're running low on time, but this is such an important concept. In the Bible, our sins are not just between me and God or between me and another person, nor are, nor are sins thought of only in terms of individual blame and guilt. Sin is also thought of as the poison or the pollution that infects other people. As an example of this in the Bible, Abraham's sin of lying about his wife pollutes Isaac, who lies about his wife. Jacob is jealous of Esau and lies to steal his birthright. And that response to jealousy pollutes Jacob's children, who in their jealousy lie about the death of Joseph. And maybe, by the way, what you see in the lying of Abraham and the lying of Isaac is what mutates to become the lie of Jacob and his children. You can see it right in Genesis. God forgiving this pollution means that he forgives the way that we harm others in teaching them and passing on our sins to them, but it also means undoing it in our lives and in their life. We're going to talk about that more in a second. The same is also true of forgiving our trespasses, which usually refers to our intentional sins, the times when we know that what we're doing is wrong, but we choose to do it anyway. And it's also true of our sins generally. And here the word for sin uh, is just the normal catch-all term for every bad thing we do that breaks God's commands or doesn't keep God's commands. Uh, God says that when we live with him, with him, he forgives those things. He forgives our sins, he forgives our trespasses, he forgives our iniquities that we have learned and that we've passed on to our shame and sorrow to those whom we love and live with. But like I said, uh, forgiveness is not only pardon. It is sanctifying power. And here we come to our last point quickly. The Lord lives with us in sanctifying grace. And this is the last half of verse 7. Probably the hardest part for us of this passage. He says, But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So I know that this statement raises a lot of questions. Uh, the best way to answer them, I think, is to reflect on the fact that God says the same thing earlier in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, now, as I've said in the past, when we've talked about them there, uh, this, that, that statement there, it seems like the point of this is uh, that in the Ten Commandments is so that we learn that Jesus is the only way to break the effects of sin in our life. If we are left to ourselves in the way that God has created the world to work, sin spreads, and only Jesus can stop the spread and undo its effects. But that does not seem to be the reason here exactly, because here, unlike in the Ten Commandments, the context is not how we are called to live with God, 
Instead, the context is how God lives with us. Now, these things go together, obviously, right? And God, using the same description, tells me they can't really be separated practically in the Christian's life, but that doesn't mean they can't be distinguished. And here's the distinction as I see it. Having told us all about how gracious and merciful God is, God doesn't want us to think that that means he doesn't care about the ongoing sins in our life. He absolutely cares that sin remains. And so it seems to me that God says this here so that we would know that Jesus remains opposed to sin in our life. That he fights against it actively, even while he meets us in his mercy and steadfast love. Uh, sometimes it's hard to see how loving and forgiving someone can go together uh, with, while at the same time opposing sin in their life. This is not a new problem. Uh, King David, a man after God's own heart, uh, who had multiple wives, uh, even though the Bible told kings not to do that. And by the way, uh, here you can see another example of iniquity when you realize that Solomon learned to have multiple wives from his dad, even though the Bible told him not to. Anyway, David had multiple wives, lots of kids, dozens and dozens, and he loved his kids. He forgave his kids. We see that he treated his kids pretty well, but he didn't oppose sin when it showed up in their life. And the most horrific example of this is when one of his sons raped one of his daughters. And the Bible says David gets angry and does nothing. Nothing. It doesn't take much imagination to think of the fallout of that failure to stand opposed to sin in his son's life in the way that it ultimately divided the kingdom and destroyed his family. Imagine if what it meant to live with God meant all forgiveness, no opposition to the sin in my heart. My family would hate to live with me. I'm forgiven. And that's why I'm going to be as selfish as I can be today, which is really easy for me to do. See, this is why we need to know Jesus' whole name, his full name. He is the God who lives in opposition to our sins, while at the same time meeting us with patience and mercy and grace. And that means living with Jesus will mean experiencing Jesus fight the sin that exists in our hearts. It will not always be comfortable because dealing with sin is often uncomfortable. But it will also mean that at the same time we will experience his patience, his forgiveness, and his graciousness. And that's what I want to conclude with. When we fall into sin, as Israel did here, we need to learn that life with Jesus won't mean uh, that we will not have to address our sin. We will. Israel did in Exodus. We will too because Jesus is addressing it. Because he lives with us. He opposes us because he loves it. He loves us. Hates sin, but loves us sinners. But again, we don't need to be afraid of that opposition because the one fighting against it is also the one who loves us and forgives us and helps us. Is the one who went to the cross and died for us and rose again and gave us his spirit 
to empower us into new, uh, a new life of obedience and love with Jesus. And so let's be glad that the God who lives with us in our sin as sinners is Jesus. The God who gives himself up for us. The God who forgives us. The God who opposes sin in our life. All because he wants us uh, to be more and more conformed to the image of his son and brought safely to our heavenly home with him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the God who lives with us in forgiveness and mercy and grace. Thank you uh, that though you love us as we are and welcome us as we are, that you refuse to leave us that way and that you lovingly oppose the sins that remain in our life. Uh, please help us to join you in fighting against these sins and uh, please help us to join you in the confidence that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that you uh, show steadfast love to thousands, and that you forgive iniquity and transgression and sin because you have revealed your name so profoundly through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this, and we pray all of this in his name. Amen.